Hello, my friends. I want to tell you more about my favorite U.S. governor and what he's done now. And if that's a role model for Canadian conservatives, of course it is. I wonder if anyone will follow it. That's next. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe, eight bucks a month. You get my show every night, every weeknight. And that eight bucks, I know it's not a ton of dough to you, but it really adds up for us. Please chip in. It's how we pay our salaries around here. Because, you know, we got a whole staff of people and we don't take any money from Justin Trudeau. So we rely on you. Thanks for your help. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, let me tell you a story about my favorite U.S. governor and what we can learn from him. It's October 27th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. All the polls show that Donald Trump is going to win the Republican presidential primary. And that Harvard-Harris poll I showed you the other day suggests that if an election were held today, Trump would win and handily beating Joe Biden by 6%, if I recall. By the way, that's a bigger margin of victory than any president has received since Obama clobbered John McCain 15 years ago. Now, it's just a poll, but it shows that no matter what the deep state has thrown at Trump so far— A lot of people still want him back. It really is incredible when you stop to think of how desperate things have become in America and around the world in just three years since the last election. The economy, American prestige in the world, wars and rumors of wars. I think Trump could win the next election. Even if he were in prison, he could win. I'm actually worried that he might be assassinated. So they tried to do to Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro just weeks before his historic election a few years back. I mean, why wouldn't they try and kill Trump? So maybe Trump will be the next president, but as long as Trump is running, I think Ron DeSantis will not be able to break through. I think that's just a a fact. I, I like DeSantis a lot for reasons I've shared with you before. I think he'd make an outstanding president, but I don't think he can win the primary if Trump is there. And I don't know if he could beat Biden if Trump wasn't. I think he might. I think he probably could, actually. Perhaps he'll run again in four years. He's young enough, and he'd have even more of a track record in Florida to run on. You've heard me say before, though it's been a while since we've talked about DeSantis, I like him. Because he's a principled conservative, I like how he fights with the media. He doesn't bend the knee to them. But what I like most about him, what I like more about him than any other conservative politician in the world that I can name, is that Ron DeSantis uses all the tools at his disposal. He works every single angle. He uses every single power that a governor has. In that way, he's like a Democrat. You know what I mean. The Democrats are relentless. They're all-encompassing. They don't leave anything unused or untouched. I mean, just to stay with the theme, look at how they're going after Trump, how they have before and still are throwing everything at him. Where's that killer instinct on the right? Why didn't our side go after Hillary Clinton in that way? Or Bill Clinton, let alone the Biden crime family? Look at the brutal prosecution of the January 6th meanderers. That's what I'm calling the insurrectionist, some insurrection, as if meandering around the Capitol building was tantamount to a coup, as if if you just sat in a magical chair like a throne, uh, 
you'd be king or something. But they've jailed those meanders for three years already, and they're even prosecuting Trump's lawyers and assistants now. I'm not saying conservatives should break the law, as is clearly happening under the Democrats, but DeSantis comes the closest to being a full meal deal activist right-wing governor as possible. For example, he wasn't afraid to take on Disney, which was considered untouchable in Florida before. Disney was shooting at him politically, going full woke, and he pushed back. He actually took away their special legal status in Florida and generally humbled Disney. And he won. <laughs> Disney surrendered, saying they'd get out of the woke business. We'll see if that's true in the long run. But it's the first time a conservative ever stared them down, and they blinked. DeSantis became my hero, of course, during the lockdowns for the same reason. He just said, no, I'm not going to go along with this. He appointed an outstanding freedom-oriented Surgeon General. He didn't parrot what Anthony Fauci said. He, he banned schools from closing. He said they weren't allowed to close. He banned local politicians from implementing vaccine mandates or the like. He even fought with the cruise ship companies on the same stuff. He used every single lever and button that a governor can use. There are 26 Republican governors around America. Name me one other who does as much as DeSantis. I'll wait. Which brings us to the current problem with Israel and Hamas. What can a governor do? Foreign policy and military policy and diplomatic policy are federal matters, not for governors, right? Right. But did I show you this letter the other day? I went through it on the live stream that I've been doing. But uh, let me show this letter to you now. It's a letter from Ron DeSantis' appointees running the state university system. So these are universities funded by the state of Florida. I'm going to read a bit to you, but right there. The fact that Ron DeSantis has appointed ideologically sound people to a traditionally left-wing woke domain right there before I even read this letter to you, I'm telling you this is different than the other governors who probably let the woke teachers union types run the show. So here's a memo. It's from state university presidents, uh, sorry, it's two state university presidents from Chancellor Ray Rodriguez, a DeSantis man. Re, deactivation of National Students for Justice in Palestine. So let me just read it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read most of it. During a holy Jewish holiday, the recognized terrorist organization Hamas launched an unprovoked attack on Israel. Among those killed were babies, women, and elderly. To date, approximately 1,400 Israelis have been killed, including 31 American citizens. Okay, so he's just laying out the facts, but watch where he goes with this. Governor DeSantis... Our state university system and the Florida college system have condemned these attacks, okay? Hamas is responsible for this attack and claims it as Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. In the wake of the terror, military leaders of Hamas have called for the mobilization of Palestinians in support of the operation. Okay, now he's thinking like a prosecutor here. He's putting forward key facts and watch how he brings them together. So, so far you're thinking, okay, so you're telling me what I know. Terrorists committed the crime, the, the terrorist attack, but he's saying, okay, they, they admit they did it. They're calling it Operation Alexa Flood, and they called for Palestinians around the world to join. Okay, so where is he going with this? Listen. In response and leading up to a day of resistance, the National Students for Justice in Palestine, National SJP, released a toolkit which refers to Operation Alaska Flood as the resistance and unequivocally states, quote, Palestinian students in exile are part of this movement, not in solidarity with this movement. You see where he's going? So he's saying the terrorists say, here's what we're doing. It's a project. It's a movement. And this student group is saying, yeah, we're part of it. 
Well, watch this. Here, he drops the hammer. It is a felony under Florida law to, quote, knowingly provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization. And he cites the law. Here, National SJP has affirmatively identified it is part of the Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, a terrorist-led attack. They admitted it. And indeed, they did say we're going to help. We're part of it. I'll keep reading. The State University System of Florida has at least two institutions with active national SJP chapters. These chapters exist under the headship of the National Students for Justice in Palestine, who distributed a toolkit identifying themselves as part of the Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. Well, you know where it's going. Based on the national SJP's support of terrorism, in consultation with Governor DeSantis, the student chapters must be deactivated. These two student chapters may form another organization that complies with Florida state statutes and universal policies. The two institutions should grant these two chapters a waiver for the fall deadlines should reapplication take place. So DeSantis is saying, I'm not banning you because you're Palestinian. I'm banning you because you said you're part of this terrorist movement. You can reapply if you take out the we're with the terrorist part. So he's not banning them for their opinion. He's banning them for being part of a terrorist group. Uh, so I, what we're talking about here is a meaningful, legal, tangible act of power using the law, a law that predates him. It's not censorship. It's not even cracking down on anti-Semitism per se. It's cracking down on those idiots who say, I'll help Hamas. Well, the hell with them. DeSantis has done other things too, less legalistic, more symbolic. Uh, there are a lot of Jews in Florida, and Joe Biden took his sweet time getting planes to get citizens out of there when the commercial airlines shut down their flights. DeSantis saw an opportunity to look national and presidential. Here's a tweet he did the other day. Florida's Israel rescue operation has completed four rescue flights, bringing nearly 700 Americans home from Israel. Two cargo planes with 85 pallets of donated supplies have also arrived in Israel, thanks to all who helped make this happen. And then he put out an infographic um, sending out Florida troopers to guard synagogues is the main thing on the list, arresting any threateners. And it looks like the state itself is going to try to put on state-level sanctions against Iran. I've seen that state-level foreign policy before. You got to, you know, it's, you have to be creative about it. Here, watch Sarah Huckabee, who is the great governor of Arkansas. I really like her. Remember Sarah Huckabee? Just take a look at what she's up to. Today, we are becoming the first state in the country to take an action like the one that we are announcing right now. At the beginning of my term, my administration worked with our partners in the legislature to get hostile foreign entities out of Arkansas. I was proud to sign Act 636, sponsored by Senator Johnson and Representative Vaught, banning foreign parties from nine enemy countries from owning agricultural land in Arkansas. And today, we are acting on that law. I'm announcing that Syngenta, a Chinese state-owned agrochemical company, must give up its land holdings in Arkansas. Syngenta owns 160 acres in northeast Arkansas, which it uses primarily for seed research. The company that owns Syngenta, Kim China, is also on the Department of Defense's list of Chinese military companies posing a clear threat to our state. Seeds are technology. Chinese state-owned corporations filter that technology back to their homeland, stealing American research and telling our enemies how to target American farms. That is a clear threat to our national security and to our great farmers. 
especially since the Chinese government enacted a law in 2017 requiring Chinese citizens abroad to collaborate with their country's security officials on intelligence work with no questions asked. Isn't that interesting? She's a pretty good governor, too, because she's, you, you take my point about using the levers, pushing the buttons, not just saying, well, I'm just going to do the, the minimum. No, she's thinking outside the box. She's, she's acting like a Democrat in terms of she's using everything in her power. And that is my point. A governor can do a lot. Maybe not as much as a president, but a lot. A mayor can do a lot. Even an individual member of parliament can. Now, compare DeSantis and Huckabee to our own governments up here in Canada, not just our official opposition, but the provinces where so-called conservatives are actually in power. Are they using all the levers in their control? Are they doing what the left would do if the left took over those offices? I don't mean to be abusive. I don't want to that. I don't want to break the law. I mean to use the law, to use the power that the electors gave to them. I mean, look at how DeSantis put ideologically conservative people in charge of the universities. When was the last time you ever saw that? I'm talking about making ideologically sound appointments to offices. I've never quite understood, for example, why Stephen Harper left the Canadian Senate empty. I, I know his thinking. He thought, well, I'm just going to wait till there's Senate reform. But, but he gave an empty Senate to Trudeau, who instantly stacked it with liberals. Why didn't Harper just put his conservatives in there in the last moments of his reign? I'll just never understand that. He gave the Senate to the liberals. I see a few things that give me some hope. Like Danielle Smith announcing that she'll cut Alberta's ties to the World Economic Forum. Pierre Polyev said he'll do the same thing. But why not go through the entire massive bloated government and budgets and just shut down entire departments, repeal entire laws, root out entire ideas like net zero? I mean, pull the weed out by its roots. I'm just talking about general things, but let's talk about the war, for example. If you're a provincial premier like Daniel Smith or Doug Ford in Ontario, why would you permit schools to let outside pro-Hamas NGOs organize a massive high school rally for Hamas during school hours and, and for teachers and principals to let kids out? Why would you let that happen if you were a conservative education minister? That just happened in Ontario this week. Why would you let universities turn into hate rallies? Why wouldn't you take control of those things within your constitutional purview? If you need help thinking about it, imagine if some tiki torch carrying white nationalists, I don't even think there are any in Canada, but if there were, and if they marched on campus with their tiki torches and said the same anti-Semitic things from the river to the sea, you know, you know, which basically means get rid of the Jews. What do you think left-wing universities would do if some far-right racist, again, I don't know of any far-right racist groups in Canada uh, that actually would do such a thing, but God forbid if there was one. You can imagine what a left-wing university would do. They would deploy massive security. They would call for the police to make arrests. They would give trespass notices to those white nationalists. They would name and shame them. They would, if any of them were students, they would be kicked out. And I'm not talking about being bullies and vindictive. I'm saying if someone is a wicked anti-Semite calling for the death of Jews, you would do a lot of things, including perhaps uh, taking away their, their status at the university, which is controlled by the provinces. Why wouldn't you proceed with prosecutions under the criminal code for those anti-terrorism provisions? Are you facilitating, participating, instructing, or harboring terrorists? That's a decision that provincial attorneys general can make. I'm not much for hate speech laws. I don't believe in them, but the laws are on the books.
And you bet the left would use them to prosecute their political enemies if they were saying, saying anti-Semitic things. Well, how about not political enemies, but people who literally promote banned terrorist groups? Can we please prosecute people who literally support terrorist groups? Or how about doing what we've just launched a campaign today to do? I don't know if you saw it. We launched a campaign to deport foreign students who are engaged in Hamas hate rallies. Here's our David Menzies launching the campaign today in New York City. David Menzies for Rebel News here in New York City with my ace cameraman, Lincoln J. And folks, we are fighting back. We are fighting back against foreign nationals in cities like New York, cities all around the world, in which thousands of demonstrators have come out in support of Hamas, in support of terrorism. And this is all in light of the barbaric atrocities that occurred in Israel on October 7th, more than 1,400 dead in many in savage and brutal ways. Why is it that foreign nationals are here supporting that? Why is it that so many people on student visas are advocating this kind of hatred? We are also going to be taking this truck to other cities, Washington, D.C., Ottawa, Toronto. And we want you to go to our new petition. That's deporthamas.com, deporthamas.com. If you can put your name there, and also if you can make a donation, these trucks cost about $2,000 a day. We think it is indeed money well spent to deport these foreign nationals, who, by the way, should consider themselves lucky that they are not being charged under various laws that prohibit the support of terror groups in the first place. Once again, folks, please go to deporthamas.com. But this is partly about the war, but it's partly about everything, really. The revelation I had was when I saw Dr. James Lindsay speak in Alberta a few weeks ago, and he said to the left, the issue is never the issue. The revolution is always the issue. The ends justify the means. They say things like any means necessary. It's always about the revolution. No, we don't believe that. We don't believe in murder or crime or the ends justify the means. But why wouldn't we believe in conservative politicians using the legitimate powers that the electorate gives to them, that the legislature has codified for them? Why would we only let the radicals on the left use the tools of government? That's one of the things I like about Danielle Smith, by the way, her Alberta pension plan idea, her Sovereignty Act idea, her pushback on Stephen Gilbo. It's being active, not just reactive, and it's trying to move the football down the field rather than just playing defense all the time to the bad guys. Ron DeSantis has done more than anyone else in America to push back against the terrorists. Show me someone else who has decertified a terrorist club. It's a pitifully small thing, by the way, but at least he's done something. Can we have a bit more of that in Canada too, please? Stay with us. More from Avi, who's in the war zone. Next. Yeah, Ezra, so look, it's been... I can't believe it's already the end of the week. Friday evening here in Israel. Uh, the Shabbat's about to come in. And... You know, I can't believe we've been here on the ground in the front line for almost, well, two and a half weeks. And we've seen a lot. The last 24 hours has not been any karma. In fact, uh, we've packed it in. We've gone to um, 
you know, some of the sites we're taking from, we're taking to with, uh, by Danny Danon, a Knesset member, um, and used to be the, I think the UN representative for Israel who took us to the site of the, um, Berry Nova massacre to Kfar Aza, which was the, um, kibbutz where again, they went house to house butchering people. And we heard from, in fact, it's a, the interesting part there is that's, is that's where I served 18 years ago. That's where I was deployed. Most of my service was in Kfar Aza. I didn't recognize the place. And, um, he showed us the, the Colonel showed us, you know, took us into a house, showed us how they, once they, once, uh, the family locked themselves into the safe rooms, which you could see clearly the only room that wasn't burnt was, was the safe rooms. Um, and they, and they couldn't get them out. They couldn't, they couldn't open the doors. They, they just burnt down the houses trying to kill everybody in their path. It's by feet. They murder, torture, rape, and even took off the heads of babies and of our soldiers. What stopped this attack? All the civilian armed in this settlement, the head of the settlement, like a really leader, go first. After this, the army and the police arrived here and together with the civilian stopped this horrible attack. After they came and killed all the family or shoot on every one, women, little children, old men, the family gets inside the safety room and lock himself inside. The terrorists from Hamas burned the house. If you can see, you see that the safe house, the safe room is normal. You don't see the fire inside. The civilian and the army and the police came after this, can arrive to the window and get outside each family very, very slowly. Because in this street that you see here, guns fight, missile, grenades, and it's not one hour. It's a really war. 48 hours in this street, you have a, a big mess. But with the bravery, there was very brave, the civilian, the police, the army, to stop this eerie walking around those streets and hearing the stories and hearing it from the people that were on the front line from the beginning. The Colonel that spoke to me, he was, he gave me so much of his time and he told me off camera, the reason why I'm doing this, I never told He actually said to me, I, I've my whole military career, which has been in the army for about 30 years. He's always avoided the cameras, but he said that it's come to a point now, something that he's never witnessed in his life that he realized that, Part of his job, so his first job initially in the initial hours, he tells us that within two and a half, two and a half to three hours of the attack, so at about eight, uh, I think eight thirty or nine a.m., he was already on the ground um, fighting the terrorists, the, the three thousand terrorists that had entered Israel. In one uh, house, I found the father out from the room. 
and the family was inside, waiting to us. The father was out with a gun. All the magazine is over. And his other hand have a knife. This is a father who rescued his family. And this is the bravery of Israel. And he said he after they they reclaimed the land and killed or captured the terrorists and closed the border off, then, of course, securing the border was important, but then he realized a part of his job was to ensure that the world knows what happened there because he said a bit like the Holocaust, people try to deny these things and minimize it or whatever, and it's important for the world to know what he saw. He says no video, no images, no nothing can can actually um, uh, illustrate the, 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 the horrors that he personally witnessed. So, you know, he's, he's obviously on the front line fighting the battle, but also part of his fight, he says, is to take media and media with reach around, you know, it doesn't matter which network, anyone that's willing to come out there um, that 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 seems like they're actually in good faith want to know what really happened. He's taken the time out of his day to do it, and um, he was just so humble about it. And 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 you could see on his face what responding to the attacks did on those days to him personally. I need to explain this photo. I know what my eyes saw. How soon after the attack were you here? I arrived to 8.30 in the morning. So two, nine. two hours, two and a half hours after it started. And what did you see for yourself? I see what I need to do. I see my job. We also spoke to Danny Danon, who reacted to uh, the announcement from the Australian government that they're giving another $15 million dollars to the Palestinian, to the West Bank and Palestinian territory, what they say is uh, to people affected by this conflict, they say they're doing it through trusted partners. I put that to Danny Danon. He basically responds by saying, you know, uh, as long as you can verify that it's not going to Hamas, because we know for years Hamas has been using the international aid not to build hospitals, not to build schools, not to help the people of Gaza, but rather to build tunnels and rockets and weaponry to fight and terrorize their neighbors. Um, so he had that message for them. We also, and we also, you have to think we had to travel there in a, in bulletproof uh, vehicles. It was quite intense in, in, into a really closed military zone. We've been, most of our trip here has been inside military, uh, closed military zones, which you have to be uh, pressed to be in there or, or, or one of the few locals that refused to leave. But, um, in Beri and Kfaaza and those places where those massacres really annihilated entire towns, they're closed and 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 they're active kind of war zones still now. So, uh, you know, we were really grateful to be able to go there and see it firsthand and 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 share those stories with the audience at the truth uh, about the war.com. Where else did we go, Benji? I'm trying to remember. There's so much happened in the last 24 hours. So we also got to speak to special forces, um, police officer that re that responded to the attacks initially in Sterot. unit, And actually we react to different terroristic uh, um, events that happens and that's our job. 
So did you react to the, t the attacks on uh, October 7? Correctly. Uh, on 6.30 in the morning, we got a message that we need to go quick as much as, as we can to Zderat because we got uh, information about the invasion of many terrorists over there. And actually, when we started to drive to Zderat, uh, next to Yad Mordechai, uh, we got uh, shot two times by RPG and uh, thanks God they missed us. Uh, after uh, some fire that we were uh, conducting over there, we started to move to Zderod because we got uh, information by the radio that uh, the uh, different po uh, policemen are asking for help because they tried to invade inside the police station. And actually we arrived over here, there were like around 20 terrorists running over this road and we started to conduct fire with them. It was really hard. I saw one of them, he tried to shoot RPG on me and I shot him, I killed him. After that we saw that two terrorists are moving across the road to the train station and we actually we started to run after them and they entered to bushes and who know how to fight, it's very complicated uh, place to fight. We started to search for the terrorists and after we searched for 20, 40 seconds they surprised us from five meters they started to shoot us we were four two of my guys were shot and it was only me and my commander and after like 30 40 seconds we managed to kill them and one of them he was playing dead and he threw a grenade over us it's uh, the ex after the explosion, one of our guys who, who was already shot, he got the grenade on him and the bushes started to burn and he started to scream that he is uh, burning. So I ran into the fire and I took him back to us and we took our injured guys to the ambulance. We gave him the first aid and we continued to fight. But there was, there was plenty more. I, I, look. The, the audience needs to go back and to the truth, uh, the truth about the war.com because there's so, so many videos are coming out of the work that we've been doing on the ground and everyone we're speaking to, and we're speaking to a, a wide variety. We're talking about, you know, soldiers, c colonels. So, you know, um, higher leadership plus actual younger soldiers. That's right. We spoke to a few soldiers on base yesterday, a couple of soldiers on base who were prepared to go in and they were so um, well articulated in the way, in the way they, they're, they're the kind of faces that the media refuses to show the, the, it, it, it dispels a whole myth of what the IDF soldier is that the mainstream media paints them as. They were the most, um, genuine people. And you can hear, they don't really want to go to war, but they say, we have to go to war. I don't want to kill anyone, but we have to defend our people. I wish this wasn't happening, but this is our reality. So as somebody who did three years made Aliyah from a different country, somebody who's married. I have a whole lot of stuff going on in my life, a lot of different priorities. The guys who are in Miluim, guys who have families, guys who have been here, been there, want to go to war, want, don't want to go to war. Civilians who were called up. People have a lot of stuff to live for, a lot of things on their mind. This is a war. This is an initiative that has just united everybody in a way that I've never seen. Never seen, not in the Jewish people, not in the land of Israel, not in the military, nowhere. Uh, so you want to ask about morale. There, there, there's nothing people want more than to just go in there and not kill, not avenge, not uh, bloodthirsty, to just get, get some justice done, to really just erase this threat 
bring peace to southern Israel, which has been for so, so, so long. It's about time. Uh, people could live in peace, and they could play basketball on their front lawn, and they can play with their kids on a Saturday afternoon and not worry about people coming in and slaughtering, you know, 50% of their community. That's something that really unites everybody. And even though it's been three weeks and we've been pushed off, we've had plans that have been, you know, canceled and rescheduled again and again and again, and I'm sure there still will be. Uh, people are with a smile, even if, even, even if it's an internal smile sometimes, uh, ready to go in and just uh, completely charged and ready to and, go. And, uh, you know, me personally, I try to lift up the Avira, like the, the vibes, you know, because it is hard times, but it doesn't mean, you know, we're on you know. We have to always be strong and keep going. We spoke to a couple of soldiers that, uh, that we, we kind of saw it from the side where they walked up to the minister, Danny Danon, and they were, you know, we overheard them telling the minister, don't be afraid, make sure we go in, we're ready, we, we understand the cost, but this needs to be done. And so I, I kind of um, ran after them and said, you know, can you tell me what this is about? And he, and, and he basically told it to us, yes, we, 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 hate, we get it, there's changes or whatever, but we want to make sure that our government's not getting cold feet because this has to be done because we don't want the next generations having this same fight. That's it. That that was a red line that that, that was crossed and we have to make sure to fight it. So, um, and, and Danny also responded to it by saying that he, uh, he agreed with the soldiers. Finally, today, today was a hard one because we spent, uh, some, a fair bit of time with, the families of kidnapped uh, hostages in Gaza right now, and I think that that one's being produced as we speak. And it was it was so difficult. And one that stands out to me is the cousin of um, what was her name? Mia, Mia something. Mia. That she, she she's well known because the Hamas. She's the one that Hamas released the video of her. Um, and just hearing her cousin talk, it's it's heartbreaking, but it's so important for the world to be reminded about what this all started with and what's still happening today, even though the mainstream media, by large, is trying to to stop people from remembering, hoping people forget so that they can demonize Israel. As usual, Ezra, um, we'll continue to follow the story and, and see if this ground invasion happens over the weekend, right now, our sources are confused and we're getting confused messaging. The only thing that is clear is 100% sometime in the near future, the ground invasion will begin. There has been small invasion, invasion uh, um, incursions in the last 24 hours. The military says that they'll continue to do those, which is clearing uh, the entry into Gaza. We'll keep watching it here from the front line. Well, it's been a couple of weeks of really busy news, hasn't it? Terrible news. Most of it's bringing very depressing news. But you got to keep hope alive. What else can you do? And where there's life, there's hope. Um, I've enjoyed doing not just my, my shows at night, but I've been doing the live stream uh, every day at 1 p.m. Eastern. Really, uh, for the last two weeks, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, but I should tell you that I have been invited by the ARC form, A-R-C, Alliance of Responsible Citizenship. That's Jordan Peterson's answer to the World Economic Forum, his rebuttal, his response to it, not just him, other freedom-oriented, conservative-oriented thinkers. So there's a huge conference, about 2,000 people, in London, England, that starts um, October 30th. 
and goes for three days. And while I'm, and I've been invited, I'm, I've accepted. So I'm going to go there and Avi Amini's going to come. He's in Israel now. And so he's going to be there and I'm going to participate in the conference, but we'll also do news from the conference. So I'm going to try and do some shows from the UK about what this ARC forum, this antidote to the WEF is like. Now, I won't be doing shows every single day because it's because of the timing and, and you know, it's just not as easy as when I'm here at the studio. So Sheila and David Menzies may take the odd show for me next week, but it is my hope to do several shows from London. And there's going to be so many interesting people at this ARC Forum conference. I'm sure we're, we're going to buttonhole, like I understand Bjorn Lomborg, the skeptical environmentalist is speaking. Of course, I mentioned that Jordan Peterson and himself is speaking. I haven't actually gone through the whole speakers list yet. I've just been too busy. But I, my hope is that we actually have a lot of content for you from this anti-World Economic Forum. Doesn't that sound like a good idea, finally, for there to be a counterweight? I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so that's something that I hope you will look forward to as well. We always rail against the World Economic Forum, as we should. But is there some antidote to it? Well, Jordan Peterson and friends think so, and I'll tell you what I see when I'm over there. So until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.